Good morning. My name is Emily Heinen, and I will be reading this morning's scripture. This is 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 29. Now, when David the king was dwelling in his own house, and Yahweh had given him rest from all his enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, Look now, I'm dwelling in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells among tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Do all that's in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. But that same night, the word of Yahweh came to Nathan. Go tell my servant David, thus says Yahweh, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I haven't dwelt in a fixed house from the day I brought the children of Israel out of Egypt till this day. Rather, I was moving here and there in a tent, a tabernacle. In all my moving among all the children of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel, whom I instructed to shepherd my people Israel? Did I say, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, tell my servant David, thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to become prince over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies before you, and I'll make for you a great name, and I'll appoint a place for my people Israel, so that they may settle in their own place and not be disturbed again, as in the days when I ordered judges over my people Israel, and I'll give you rest from all your enemies. Indeed, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. When your days are complete and you lie down with your ancestors, I'll raise up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I'll establish his kingdom. It's he who will build a house for my name, and I'll establish, establish the throne of his kingdom. I'll be to him a father, and he'll be to me a son. When he commits evil deeds, I'll discipline him with a rod like men use. But I won't take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will stand sure in my presence. Your throne will be established for an age. In accord with all these words and this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in to sit before Yahweh and said, Who am I, my Lord Yahweh, and who is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet that was a small thing in your eyes, my Lord Yahweh, since you also spoke about your servant's house toward a distant future. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, my Lord Yahweh. It's for the sake of your own word and your heart that you've brought all this greatness so that your servant may become aware of it. All this shows that it's you who are great, my Lord Yahweh, for there is no one like you and there is no God apart from you. Who also is like your people Israel? Is there one other nation on earth that God went to redeem as a people for himself and to set a name on it? And you established for yourself Israel to be your people for an age. And you, Yahweh, became their God. And now, Yahweh God, the word you spoke about your servant and his house, may you make it solid and bring it about just as you said. Thus, your name will be magnified when people say, Yahweh of hosts is God over Israel. Then the house of David will be established in your presence. For you, Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, told your servant, I will build a house for you. Therefore, your servant has found the heart to pray you this prayer. And now, my Lord Yahweh, you yourself are the one God, and your words are true, and you've declared this, thing, this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may you bless the house of your servant, so that it may be in your presence for an age. For you, my Lord Yahweh, have spoken, and from your blessing, your servant's house will be blessed for an age. Thank you, Emily, for that beautiful reading of a long passage of Scripture. If you do not already have the, um, the notes for the, the message today, the paradox of temple and kingdom, 
uh, raise your hand and, and some will be brought to you so that you can have that, the text that you just heard uh, Emily read, as well as the notes that I'm going to be uh, following as we uh, approach this, this, this text from 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 29. It has been a wonderful time of worship together this morning, and I so thank um, Emily Kahneman for just uh, the beauty of the way in which our service has flowed, and just all of those in our praise team and those who have brought testimonies and uh, prayers and all, all of the rest of it. Just truly just love it and uh, find it so uh, uplifting for myself. I always, um, I, well, the phrase that I use for my, to myself is, does it lift me up and carry me along? And uh, I find that it truly uh, did this morning in, in carrying me forward into the presence of, of God and to genuinely uh, worship with all of us together. So I thank you all for, for that and, and just want to, um, for that experience to be present for everyone. Thank you all who are, are here today. The Paradox of Temple and Kingdom is the title that I picked. Temple and Kingdom, I think maybe it's sort of obvious. Why, how is it a paradox? And we're going to be uh, talking uh, some more about that as we, as we go along. If you look on the, the back side of, your, of the notes there, the second page, there is a quotation of one verse from the New Testament. We're looking at a, a lot of passages from the Old Testament right now, but I put in one verse, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, uh, the, the first gospel to be actually written down, and the very first verse of that, that gospel. Mark says, beginning of the announcement of good news of Jesus Christos is the Greek word, Christ, it's usually translated, but also it can be actually translated anointed king. Jesus, anointed king, son of God. And that's how Mark begins telling the story of Jesus. And both of those phrases that he uses, Christos, anointed king, and son of God, echo back to the passage that we have before us this morning. We're looking at ways in which God has shown himself to his people through the, through the ages the, that provide us the, the framework for understanding what happens in, in Jesus. When we're told in, in uh, a little bit, just a few verses later in Mark, that Jesus came preaching, what, he, what Mark says that he's preaching is the kingdom of God, God's kingdom here breaking in. Kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, if you go over to Matthew and you go to the famous verse in chapter 16, verse 16, uh, you find Peter's confession of Jesus. And there he confesses him, you are the anointed king. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And those, those ideas are there coming, echoing down through the ages and changing in meaning, developing in meaning as they, as they go. I don't know, the, the microphone seems to be a bit echoey. I don't know whether it can be maybe turned down just a little bit um, so that I'm not sort of echoing into myself here as we go along. So the, the, this language of 
of temple and kingdom, of son of God and, and king and so forth are, is part of language that's so deep in the gospel that it is the characterization for Mark of how, what the gospel is about. It is about Jesus as this one who is king, bringing the kingdom of God and who is son of God and so on. And then also as you go on through the, the story, of Jesus in the Gospels. You see how as, as his life develops, he's teaching and doing all kinds of things and people start actually start condemning him because he's doing things that ought only to be done in the temple in Jerusalem. He starts doing things like when somebody was let down through the roof before in front of him, he, he says to them, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, everybody knew that the way sins are forgiven was for you to go to the temple in Jerusalem and, and offer a sacrifice of atonement for those sins. And as it says in Leviticus so many times, then it will atone for your sins and your sins will be forgiven. And so that, that idea of the temple as something that Jesus himself does is becomes quite striking. And then, of course, as we come toward the end of the Gospels, uh, as we move into the time of what we, we call it, this time around Easter, Palm Sunday, and then Easter Sunday, there Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and there he confronts the temple. He comes in, he purifies the temple, he teaches in the temple. The temple priests challenge him, what, by what authority do you do these kinds of things? And he won't even... He won't even engage in real discussion with them because they do not recognize when God is working. And they don't, can't tell, even with John, something as, as obvious as John the Baptist, that God was working there. And so both temple and kingdom, especially the idea of Davidic kingdom, reach back to God's covenant with David that's here in this passage of Scripture in, in 2 Samuel chapter chapter 7. And um, it is a covenant that also echoes back before itself back to the time of Abraham, which we talked about a few Sundays ago, of God calling Abraham, making a promise to Abraham even before Abraham does anything. And, not and, and that promise is given without condition, that it's going to be what God is going to do, that through him all the families of the, of the earth will be blessed. And so also as we see this promise given to David in the, the text that we have in front of us, we, we hear that same kind of promise that is unconditional as God makes a covenant with David that's going to affect Israel, that's going to affect, as we learn on through the story, it's going to affect nations around, it's going to affect the whole world. In fact, in, in so many ways, the very basis of what we know of as Christianity, of Jesus as the anointed king and us as followers of the king, goes back to this. And so there are these tremendous hopes and dreams and expectations that flow out of the covenant that we have in front of us in 2 Samuel 7. But then also there are so many failures that the narratives as they go on 
tell about and that Israel struggled with and that God has to deal with with his people. And so it becomes an amazing story that unfolds uh, with, as God deals with his people through, through David. When you come to the, to the seventh chapter of 2 Samuel, I hope that you occasionally read in 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings and of course if you really love the this you know some of the great characters of the Old Testament David is stands out head and shoulders above everybody else in certain ways Moses and David maybe Abraham Moses and David are are the great ones but there is no no name in the Bible except the name God or the name Yahweh in the Old Testament that is ever used as many times as the name David is. He is the only one in the whole Bible. Today, everybody in this, you know, can be named David, uh, but uh, in the Bible, there is only one David. David stands as this tremendous figure, but, but as he's told about in First and Second Samuel and then in the very beginning of First Kings, he is very much of a mixed person. He is a, a person of great courage and of great virtue, but also of great sins and dis- some disastrous choices that he makes. He, he at the, the time that we meet him here in the seventh chapter, has just united Israel. You remember that Saul was king before him. And David was anointed by Samuel, the name for whom these books are written, by Samuel while Saul was still king. And that made David an outlaw as far as Saul was concerned. And he put out warrants for his arrest and sent, out, sent people out after him. And David was in hiding. And many people who felt trapped by Saul's rule came to David. And so he became sort of a Robin Hood with a band of, of hundreds of, of people around him, soldiers around him, men around him who, who, who helped him and so forth. And then when Saul died, we sometimes think that the the kingdom divided, the kingdom of Israel divided only after Solomon and Rehoboam and so forth, if you remember the the story, but it actually divided right then. When Saul died, David was named the king of Judah because that was the tribe that he was part of and those tribes that were right around Judah. And he ruled and and became a sort of king uh, in, in, uh, in Hebron. And that lasted for seven, about seven and a half years. But then he conquered Jerusalem. And it was at that time that he finally uh, conquered over Saul, one of Saul's sons who was, had the allegiance of the northern ten tribes, a man named Ishbosheth, And finally was able to unite all of the 12 tribes and he comes to Jerusalem and there makes his his center and unites the tribes and becomes king over all of Israel and reigns as king over all of Israel for more than 30 years and uh, in his uh, in in his time and so as he has united this kingdom in Jerusalem a place that's kind of on the border just at the edge of the, of the tribe of Judah and close to Benjamin and close to the, to the northern tribes. He knows that ever since the time, actually of Eli, before Saul even became king, 
the, the Ark of the Covenant of God has been on a trek into enemy territory and the, the Philistines have had it and it's been, they, after it caused disaster for the Philistines, they got rid of it, but then it was, it, nobody really wanted it and it stayed sort of in the backyard of people or in, in homes and so forth as it went along. And it was at this time in a town called Kirath-Jarim and uh, David wanted to, to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Now David brings that ark to Jerusalem with, well, if you go back, I can't, we can't tell all the stories, of course, here, but remember first, it, there was disaster because somebody touched the ark. They didn't deal with the ark as they were supposed to, carrying it on the shoulders of Levites and so forth. They carried it on a wagon, and someone died. A man named Uzzah died in that, in that process. And, and David was deeply upset about that. But, but the, again, the, the, the ark ended up uh, in someone's backyard, as it were, a man named Obed-Edom. And, and they, people observed, wow, things are really going well with Obed-Edom. And David says, well, I've got to try this again. So now they look at the, the laws of God and they see that it's supposed to, the ark that is this powerful representation of God's presence is supposed to be carried by, by uh, Levites and so forth. And so they go and they build, uh, they do that. They carry it with all of the, the care that they possibly can, sacrificing along the way as they bring it to Jerusalem. And there they put it in a tent in the city of, of David in Zion. And uh, David, as you remember that story, and the story is in the chapter immediately before our text, he is so exuberant as he dances before the Lord as the ark is being brought in. It's the basis for the first song that we sang, uh, there's nothing else that I'd rather uh, do than, uh, nowhere else that I'd rather be than dancing with you as you sing over me, the, the first lines of that, that song. That idea of dancing before the Lord. That he, that he did things evidently that were not considered, at least by his wife, to be appropriate, shall we say. But he knew that it did not matter whether it was appropriate or not. He was exuberant before the Lord as the ark came to Jerusalem and was put in a tent there in that place. But at the same time, David is king now, and he builds for himself a palace, importing wood from, from Lebanon, from those great cedars of Lebanon, and building a cedar palace. And so as we start the text, David is at home in his own cedar house, and he has rest from his enemies. Hmm. And the ark is there. He's got a new capital. And uh, there's just one more thing that he thinks he really ought to do. And just as he's built a cedar palace for himself, he's talking to one of his advisors, who's a prophet, who is, whose name is Nathan. This is the first time that we hear of the prophet Nathan. And he says to him, you know, not, nothing explicit, but it's just that idea. It's not really right that I'm living in a house of, 
imported wood from Lebanon, cedar wood. I have this great palace. And the ark of God is just surrounded by tent curtains. It just didn't seem right. And Nathan agrees with him. Nathan the prophet says, Nate understands nothing has to be said explicitly. He just says, do all that's in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. God, God deserves at least as good as I deserve, right? I have a palace. It's imported wood from Lebanon. God surely deserves at least as good as what I have. And so David and Nathan both think that this is a great idea to build a house, to build just as the tabernacle, we don't really have much reference to it in this, but just the, except in the tent curtains image, just as now David has this solid house in Jerusalem, God needs a temple, a fixed place, a fixed house, something that will be beautiful and powerful and expensive so that it'll all be imported. They know that they would want one, and surely God would want one as a center of worship, which also, of course, will be a center of state, too, now that this is the capital of the United Kingdom of, of Israel. They want something that's in place there where they are that will be the center of the worship. They think that it would be good for God. They think that it would be good for, well, they don't say exactly what all they think. It's just sort of implied. It's part of the paradox of it all. And, and as we read it, don't you also agree? Surely God deserves as good as David does, doesn't he? God, if David's going to have a palace of cedar, God deserves at least that, maybe even better than that. They want to do something good for God. So David, that dancer before the Ark of the Covenant, becomes the benefactor, the one who's going to build something wonderful. And, and Nathan just says, do it. <sighs> but the irony unfolds. As you read back through those earlier passages, the earlier chapters of the story of David, God and David have been on this intimate relationship. They talk, talk with each other, at least as it's described in, in, the, in the book of Samuel. But now there's an irony that begins to set in. God doesn't speak to David. He speaks to Nathan. And he tells Nathan what to say to my servant. David, my, <laughs> the word for servant could also be translated slave. The king is God's servant here. And the irony unfolds. Everything seems good. Cedar is better than curtains. There's no reference to thinking about the tabernacle. There's going to be one new center for everything. But with all those good intentions, the thing that God says to Nathan to tell to my servant, David, is no. 
God says no to those good intentions. He speaks by Nathan. And what he says is, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? This is chapter 7, verse 5. I haven't dwelt in a fixed house from the day that I brought the children of Israel out of Egypt till this day. What had God dwelled in? What it, where had he manifested his presence with his people? In a movable tent, a tabernacle, as he, as he goes on to say. Rather, I was moving, I was moving here and there in a tent, a tabernacle. In all my moving among all the children of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I instructed to shepherd my people Israel? Did I say, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? This seems wonderful to David. It seems wonderful to Nathan. But somehow it doesn't seem wonderful to God. God is not worried about having a house as good as David. He's not worried about whether David will do something great for him or Nathan will support David as he does some great benefaction for God. And, of course, there's also that other thing. What's going to happen about this fixed house? As long as it's a tent, as long as it's a tabernacle, it can move anywhere among the people of Israel. And God emphasizes in what he says is, I was moving here and there among my people. God is a God who is on the move. And he's perfectly happy with a tent because that's what he asked for at Mount Sinai. Half of the book of Exodus is about God telling them how to build that tabernacle. And when it's built, God's presence comes and just fills it up. But there's also in the background, unexpressed, will God's center of worship become a center of state control? So Israel, Israel's story and David's story, as God then begins to talk about it here in what he says to David through Nathan, is a story of God's ever-moving intervention, his blessing by moving with his people through the wilderness in all kinds of places. The king wants to have a, a capital, he wants to consolidate his rule, and with all the best intentions. But the king is a servant. And God reminds David of David's own story. Just go back and look at that, the front side of your sheet, and I've highlighted some of these, these statements that were there. Since the day that I brought the children of Israel out of Egypt till this day. I was moving here and there in a tent, a tabernacle. Did I ever ask for this? And then down at verse 8, I took you, as he turns to David's own story. David, you're going to do a great benefaction for me, but your entire story is my intervention, what I've done for you. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to become prince 
over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you went. I've cut off your enemies before you. I'll make for you a great name. I'll appoint a place for my people so that they may settle in their own place and not be disturbed again. I even ordered judges over my people Israel in a time of great distress and so forth. And I'll give you rest from your enemies. So you know, the thing that's so striking in there is that as God speaks of it, David, you're thinking about what you've accomplished and now you're wanting to accomplish something for God. God likes a tent. God is always on the move with his people. He wants to move here and there among them. You want to fix him down, then he'll be there where you are, right next door to your palace. Hmm. And so, Israel's story, David's story, are the stories of God's blessing and God's intervention. The king is servant, and God reminds David of that story of himself, that God has been the actor in all of it. What seems to glorify God to David and to Nathan actually constricts Israel's grasp of God's character, God's interacting character, God's moving character. And as you know the story as it goes on, of course, that temple in Jerusalem is one of the bases for the split between the northern tribes and the southern tribes as it plays itself out in, in later generations. Israel was split over the temple as it was used for political control. The northern tribes had to come down to Jerusalem to worship there, and they rebelled against that. But still, there's this other aspect that comes up. You'd think God would put his foot down. And after all that I've said about it here, you'd think God is going to tell him, no, not going to have a temple. That's not what I want. I wanted a tabernacle. I want to be on the move. But that's not what happens. That's not the character of this God. Just as when, when they wanted a king... God told them through Samuel, no, you shouldn't have a king. He's going to cause you all kinds of problems. Just have God as your leader, your ruler. But then God allowed them to have a king. In fact, God named the king Solomon. I mean, Saul and then David, of course. God does not veto the desire for a temple. He delays it. He makes it part of a larger story of God's journey with Israel and with David. It's only beginning at this point. God takes human desires into his will and he creates the future with his own purposes and with human desires. Even though some of those human desires do not work out very, very well at all. And so you have this, this really surprising statement that comes up. It's in verse 11 there, a new paragraph there. Indeed, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. Same word, bayeth in Hebrew, as the house that David wants to make for, for Yahweh. Yahweh declares to you, David, that Yahweh will make you 
a house. But David already has a house. He's got a good one. Yeah, maybe, maybe God will build a bigger and a better house. No, it's a different kind of house. And it flows out as we see what he says. When your days are complete, in other words, I was saying when you're dead, this is not going to be a house for David to live in. You've already got the, all the cedar there, that's fine. But there's this other house. When your days are complete and you lie down with your ancestors, I'll raise up your seed after you who will come from your body and I'll establish his kingdom. The kingdom of the Davidic kinghood, the dynasty, to use a common word. It's he that is your seed, your offspring, your son. It's he who will build a house for my name. And of course, we know the story of Solomon building the, house, the temple in Jerusalem. And I'll establish the throne of his kingdom. The house that I'm going to build is a human story that flows out through history in relationship to God. That's the house that God builds, a house for a God who's on the move, not only here and there in the place, but through <clears throat> history. And so God makes that statement as a promise, like the promise to, to Abraham. It's a promise without conditions. God creates a covenant with David built on this unexpected promise. I'm going to build you a house. God is working toward his own purposes. That house, same word of course, is David's line of successors. It's an unfolding story. A house built across time. Now, that story is one of change and one of discipline and one of learning and one of forgetting and one of faithlessness and one of sin. Notice how God talks about this. It's he who will build, this is verse 13. It's he who will build a house for my name. I'll establish the throne of his kingdom and I'll be to him a father and he'll be to me a son. This is the first thing that would echo in people's minds in, those, in the days of Jesus when you spoke of son of God. It is God's promise to the Davidic king that he would be his son. But then notice, when, not if, but when he commits evil deeds, I'll discipline him with a rod like men use. But I won't take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house, not the one that you're living in now, but this house that is this ongoing relationship with God and your kingdom will stand sure in my presence. Your throne will be established for an age. Changes discipline, learning. But the deep promise is God's grace, God's steadfast love, his chesed. I love that word. It's just an awful word to say, but it somehow it comes to have this ring to it. 
God's chesed, his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his grace. And so they must learn this new relationship as God now with the king stands in relation of father and son. Now, 2 Samuel is part of this large work of what we call 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. It's a whole history of the, of the kingdom of, of, of northern and southern uh, Israel reaching down to the time of the ex exile. And the story, you might think it's all going to go well when God promises this, but it's full of pain. But it's also full of the faithfulness of God as God even through the pain. You know, as, as you go down through this and you hear the prayer of David before the Lord, it's, it sounds like everything's going to go well. But just turn the pages of 2 Samuel and keep reading. In chapter 8, it tells of David's victories. And they are victories. But there it also emphasizes how many people he killed and all kinds of bad effects that flowed from that that are there. And then you have Bathsheba and uh, Uriah. And then you have Amnon and Tamar. If those don't ring a bell, read, read 2 Samuel. And the murder of David's son by Tamar's brother. And then the son, the one who had done the murder, being sent away. And then coming back and then turning the whole nation against, Israel, against David so that David has to flee across the Jordan to get away from being assassinated himself. And on and on it goes, all the way to the end of the, of the book. David, with all the beauty that one sees in him, also was very much like everyone else, a broken human being. And there's pain in that whole story. So that even when the temple and the kingdom, as you go on through First and Second Kings, is destroyed at the end of Second Kings, they cry out, for God's response. There's a wonderful passage that you can look up. I won't take time to, to read it now because we're, we're past our time. But, but look at Psalm 89, written in the time of that exile, and they're calling for the fulfillment of that promise to David. What can happen now, God, you've forsaken this covenant that you swore to David. How is it going to be fulfilled? And that desire for the anointed king, for the Christos, for the Christ to come is part of the ongoing story of Israel as they go through the destruction of the temple, the exile, the return, being under the thumb of one empire after another. David goes into that tent that he, where he has the ark of God and he prays. He learns. It's all been God's work of grace as he articulates it. It's God's work. It's according to your own, your own word and your own heart that you've done the things that you've done. God created this unique people, redeemed from slavery, in covenant relationship, and now building a nation. 
But it's only with God's continued presence and the people's continued learning that they can recognize God's intervention and blessing. And the thing that happens is that there is this deep forgetfulness that comes. You have to read that long story. Read it in hope that even though everything seems to have gone so disastrously, that that promise is still there. That long history is still open to the fulfillment of the promise. And that's what happens when the story of Jesus is told as Mark starts it off. He wants to echo these, all of these tones just by two phrases, the anointed king and the son of God. Jesus comes with all the hopes of the temple and the kingdom, alive and powerful in his time in Israel under Roman rule. And he embodies that anointed king. But the way he embodies it is that Jesus is just about as unkingly as a tent is a palace. He's a king in the same sense that those tent curtains that David worried about were a palace. It didn't look kingly from human eyes, but it was what God really wanted. God's kingdom was alive and well in Israel, even as corrupt as things were under Roman rule. And Jesus embodies that king who is radically unkingly. And he is that tent, that tabernacle. That's what John says in the first chapter of John. He, the word became flesh and he set up his tent among us. He dwelt among us is the way it's usually translated, but it talks about his tent, the, the tent of God among us. And then his disciples, that's including us, become the moving, spreading temple of God with God's Holy Spirit. So God is on and on faithful to his commitment of grace. But the story, the story unfolds, the story takes new turns like it did with Abraham, like it did with David. So it is with Jesus. And we live in that in the tents alongside the tent of that ever-moving God who says, my presence can be with you. Remember it. Be with me now. David says, verse 28, and now, my Lord Yahweh, you yourself are the one God and your words are true. And you've declared this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may you bless the house of your servant so that it may be in your presence for an age. For you, my Lord Yahweh, have spoken. And from your blessing, your servant's house will be blessed for that age. Learning to see what God wants as over against what I want, you want, anybody else wants. Learning to allow God to be as strange and a mighty and wonderful and lowly and grace-filled as he wants to be. That's the challenge. The beginning of the announcement of good news 
of Jesus, anointed king, son of God. Amen. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, Father, help us that we may truly know you and what you are about. We have our own ideas of what you as God ought to be and do. And so often we impose them on you. And do not live within your will to discover it, as Jesus helps us to do through the Sermon on the Mount and so much of the rest of his teaching. To see something different. To know that you are not like our conceptions of a God but that you and your grace and in your faithfulness and in your unconditional promises are doing your own work in your world. Help us that we may live with you, the God who is on the move, who likes the curtains of a tent much more than the walls of a palace, that we may be with Jesus who had no place to lay his head. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for, for your patience with me and for listening to me this morning. Uh, stand with you would, and I just want to read a couple of verses again from our text as our benediction. Lord, it's for the sake of your own word and your heart that you have brought about all of this greatness so that your servants may become aware of it, may learn it. And this shows that it's you who are great, my Lord Yahweh, for there's no one like you and there is no God apart from you. Amen. Amen. Greet one another and go forth to serve.